Hello and welcome to the MDS podcast, the official podcast of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I'm your host, Sarah Schaefer from the Yale School of Medicine. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Zolik, a professor of neurology at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and courtesy professor of neurology at the College of Medicine at the University of Florida Health Science Center, Department of Neurology, Mayo Clinic, Jacksonville, Florida in the U.S., Today, we're going to be talking about a recent article posted in Movement Disorders Clinical Practice, July 2023, entitled Perry Disease Expanding the Genetic Basis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Schaefer, for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. I must admit that I chose this particular article because I had no idea what Perry disease was. I had never heard of it and was very interested in learning more. So can you tell us what is Perry disease? Well, Perry syndrome, and recently also known as a Perry disease, is a neurodegenerative inherited disorder that has been initially described by Dr. Perry and his colleagues in 1975. So Dr. Perry was a pediatric neurologist who was practicing at Vancouver, British Columbia, working at the University of British Columbia when he described the first kindred. And then a few years later, he described another kindred, the second Canadian family. And over the next 10 years or so, maybe two or three other families have been described. I started to work on this kindred and this disease in 1999-2000 when I was upgrading one of the book chapters for the genetics of Parkinson's disease. And I had a fellow from Japan, Dr. Tsuboi, whom I asked to help me to revise the second edition of Dr. Kohler's book and my chapter in which I mentioned that Perry syndrome is one of a very rare form of genetic Parkinsonism. And he came to me about two weeks later after they assigned the first conversation. And he said, I think we have a family with this disease in Japan. So that was very interesting to me. And later I visited that family and I worked with my fellow. We decided to form ad hoc international collaboration. And we collected about 10 kindreds, previously described and new ones, and that led to gene discovery, mutations in dynactin-1 gene. And that really put that disease on the map because now you could do the genetic testing and find this illness relatively easy. And dynactin-1 mutations are actually in all panels available for genetic testing of Parkinson's disease. But the disease is still very much underdiagnosed. We are about 30 plus kindreds described so far with about 160 cases published. So still very, very rare disease. But has a global distribution. There are cases and families described in Canada, in the United States, in Turkey, in Japan, in UK, in Poland, and other countries. 
So it's a rare disease, but is actually with global distribution. It also has been described in Colombia and in New Zealand. So as you see, rather global distribution of this illness. And I wonder if you can expound a bit on its mode of inheritance. I believe the case that you described did not have a genetic history. What is the mode of inheritance and how often is this seen sporadically? Right. So the disease is autosomal dominant. So with rather full penetrance, but sometimes, as you know, the genetic inheritance is obscured for many reasons, and we observe that in this illness and other autosomal dominant in families that I studied and followed for other illnesses. This case we described in your journal is indeed sporadic. We were not able to find positive family history despite significant effort on our part. That could be due to the spontaneous mutation that has been described in this illness and our illnesses. But in general, the patients provide positive family history, and they have other relatives that have a similar clinical pattern. So if you're a clinician seeing a patient with Parkinsonism in your clinic, especially if there's no family history. I mean, obviously, if there's a family history, you're going to be thinking about genetic Parkinson's syndromes. But if there's no family history, what are the common clinical features of this illness and how might you differentiate a patient with this from somebody with Parkinson's disease? Are there any diagnostic tests that can help assist other than genetic testing? Well, that's actually a very, very good question. So the first one is age of onset. Usually these patients have earlier age of onset in early or mid-40s. The other things are the associate Parkinsonian features. The Parkinsonian features are usually the first symptoms of this illness. So that's very important to differentiate that from classic Parkinson's disease of earlier onset. However, the Parkinsonism is usually of akinetic rigid type, and it's usually symmetrical, and usually is not much responsive to standard doses of levodopa. So those are the, the clues. Otherwise, they can have other symptoms. They can have arrested tremor. They can have postural instability. But those uh, features that I mentioned earlier, earlier age of onset, symmetrical Parkinsonism, usually akinetic rigid at the onset, and unresponsive to standard doses of levodopa, and another feature, rapid progression. And the next important factors are additional clinical features. And what are those additional clinical features? Those are very important. So the patients with Berry syndrome have four cardinal features that or signs that include Parkinsonism that I mentioned a moment ago, depression and apathy, significant weight loss. And we're talking about 10 kilograms in two, three months and despite having a good appetite. And the other one is central hypoventilation. Albeit central hypoventilation, 
usually happens later in the course of the illness. So at the beginning, it is very hard to distinguish this illness from classic uh, Parkinson's disease of earlier age of onset or the genetic Parkinsonism like pink one or parking cases that are also a similar age of onset to Perry syndrome. It certainly seems like there's a lot of overlap with some other conditions. I wonder how many of these patients have been misdiagnosed with Parkinson's plus syndromes, MSA, PSP, or even frontotemporal dementia. We'll talk about that overlap in a little bit. But before we get there, can you speak to the pathology in Perry syndrome? I completely agree with your first point that the disease, because of this overlap, with other Parkinsonian conditions is very much underdiagnosed. My goal is to let the physicians know more about this illness for a number of reasons. One, it's very unique disease, and there are some potential treatments that we can offer to this patient. So that is important to make the diagnosis, and also it has the consequences for the patient and the patient's family, since this is a genetic disease. So answering the second part of your question, what is the pathology of this illness? So it's a very interesting because it's a Parkinsonian condition. We just mentioned earlier that the first symptoms are Parkinsonism in majority of cases, but the pathology is not alpha-synuclein like in classic Parkinson's disease. The pathologies of TDP43 pathology, uh, albeit very significant depigmentation of substantia nigra and macroscopic studies, and microscopically you see the neuronal loss and gliosis in substantia nigra, but you don't see alpha-synuclein deposition. So the other basal ganglia are also affected so this is a form of TDP43 proteinopathy that has all characteristic features of this illness, but with different distribution than those seen in FTD or ALS cases. And you mentioned that there are potential therapies for these patients. Can you talk about that a bit more? Yes. So for Parkinsonian symptoms, one important thing to know is that some of these patients respond to large doses of levodopa. We are talking here more than one gram or even more than two grams of levodopa per day, so significant. So it's not the doses that we usually use for patients with classic Parkinson's disease. Of course, some patients require such a doses, but usually you can see improvement in much lower doses. So it is important to know about this because you need to push slowly the levodopa dose. Some patients start to respond at the dose above one gram per day. So that is a very important point. But also, down the road, they can develop dyskinesias like patients with classic Parkinson's disease. So the second point is treatment of central hypoventilation and breathing problems. Because actually, 
about one third to half of the patients die suddenly in the middle of the night because we just simply stop breathing. I had just recently a patient died in the afternoon hours. He was taking a nap. His wife went to do some grocery shopping and when she came back, he was deceased. So central hypoventilation is a major problem and actually cause of death. So that treatment requires ventilation support. But ventilation support really reduces the quality of life. I had another case who was in the nursing home for three months on ventilator. Now, we treated this patient with diaphragmatic pacemaking and this patient was able to return back home, enjoy much better quality of life, not frequent hospitalizations due to pneumonia. So that was very helpful. So far, because we treated only two patients with diaphragmatic pacemaker, but in both cases, quality of life was better and survival was longer. So that is very important to keep in mind that this kind of treatment is available. Do you screen patients for that? Is it very apparent in the clinic visit? Or I know in your particular case that you reported, there was a sleep study, though it did not show central hypoventilation. So how do you approach these patients? Right. Both cases treated with diaphragmatic pacemaking the first one had very frequent visits in emergency room because it required recurrent pneumonias. And then finally they did the PSG and they found that it was central hypoventilation. So the, uh, the second case I already described to you, nursing home and mechanical ventilation. Not all have central apnea on the PSG. Majority of them, this case is again outlier, the case that we publish in your journal is an outlier because this patient had PSG done twice and didn't show central hypoventilation. So there are, you know, all differences. Not all patients develop central hypoventilation, but majority of them. And if they develop the central hypoventilation, then this needs to be followed carefully. It is also important to manage depression for these patients because about one-third of them have very severe depression leading to suicidal attempts and suicides. It's not a trivial depression. It's a very severe depression, and that needs to be managed appropriately, and psychiatry help uh, needs to be also offered to this So that's the management. So the first one is high doses of levodopa, above one or even two grams per day. The second is diaphragmatic pacemaking. The third one is management of depression. And the fourth one is dietitian needs to be involved because they have a significant weight loss. So they need to have high calorie diet and that needs to be supported by dietitians. Just a clarification question, because you said that the weight loss was not related to appetite. So do they just have a much, much higher caloric need similar to Huntington's patients? Yes. Despite the fact that many of them are immobile, 
wheelchair-bound or bed-bound. And before we talk about your case, you mentioned levodopa responsive, but in terms of the other diagnostics that we typically get in the clinic, like MRI, DAT scan, how are those results in patients with peri disease? Yeah, this is a very good question. So the standard structural imaging usually show very little. There is no any structural pathology. In some cases, maybe a little bit of atrophy in the vital areas. They have cognitive impairments, but usually very little. The dead skin is abnormal and usually is abnormal symmetrically. I told you that the Parkinsonism is usually symmetrical in these cases and that is reflected in this. PSG is of paramount importance demonstrating central hypoventilation. So that is the gold standard. And genetic testing, because genetic testing to make the diagnosis. It would be helpful to have some sort of biomarkers, plasma biomarkers or CS biomarkers, which to do this type of experiments in one of our large families, but still our ends are small, so we didn't come up with anything here. Well, I imagine as alpha-synuclein seeding assays and things come out, this would be one of those situations where a negative biomarker would be helpful. Yes. Yeah, that, that could be indeed. So tell us about your case and how it adds to the information that we know about peri disease. Well, our case that we published in your journal is of importance from several reasons. First of all, there was no positive family history like in other cases. So that was kind of unusual. The second thing was a little bit later age of onset. And the age of onset, uh, the first symptoms were not Parkinsonian by rather apathy and frontal lobe release kind of signs, uh, frontotemporal signs. And so that was a little bit different. And then the genetic testing showed mutation, so variant, which was labeled as a VUS, variant of uncertain significance, initially, for a number of reasons. First of all, that variant was outside of capglycine domain. And so far, the patients with classic Parkinson's disease have mutations in capglycine domain on exon 2 of this dynactin 1 gene. So that was a little bit different genetically, but we were able to secure autopsy when the patient died, and the autopsy was of classic Perry syndrome, which we actually compared with another patient with classic Perry syndrome, and then autopsy was almost identical. So based on this information, we thought that this mutation is pathogenic which was also not seen in GNOME AD and was also predicted to be pathogenic. We thought that this is another mutation a little bit outside of capglycine domain, which kind of expands the genetic hotspot in the gene. So that was the importance of this, of this particular case. There are about 14 mutations in capglycine domain. So this one will be the 15 one, a little bit outside the genetic domain. All right. So finally, in addition to this case, this patient having been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, 
what struck me, and you've mentioned this, is that they had a lot of features that we might think about with FTD. They had progressive language dysfunction, repeated semi-purposeful tasks, apathy and withdrawal. Can you discuss the clinical, pathological, and genetic overlap between the TDP-43 apathies? You mentioned that pathologically the distribution is different. There's also, it seems, quite a clinical overlap. Do you view these as kind of on a spectrum, or how would you characterize these disorders? This overlap with other diseases like FTD or ALS may help us with treatments. We might eventually borrow the treatments with both conditions and apply to this one. And there is a significant overlap. The pathology is similar in morphology. It's just only different distribution. The clinical features, now with more and more families described, we are learning that some families have atypical features, like in this case. They have behavioral problems, they have personality changes. Usually, memory is preserved. Some of them have compulsive behaviors. So there is definitely FTD spectrum. Now, there is also some overlap with ALS. And actually, we are not the first who demonstrated the presence of mutations in dynactin-1 gene. A laboratory five or six years earlier reported family from Alabama that had mutation in dynactin-1 gene. Only, if I recall, 12 or 14 amino acids, different position from the nearby Perry syndrome mutation and completely different presentation. And that presentation... That, that Alabama family had what they call distal hereditary motor neuropathy 7B or distal spinal and bulbar muscular atrophy. These patients didn't have any Parkinsonism. They had muscle atrophy in hypophenar and phenar muscles distally and in vocal cords. And the age of onset was a decade later. Survival was for 20 or 30 years. As a matter of fact, with help of Dr. Orr from University of Alabama, I got access to this original family. I talked to one of the family members. It was 15 years after the paper was published, and she was still alive, and was hard to understand her because she had significant hypophonia due to the vocal cord atrophy. But she was living a very long time. We also got the autopsy on one of these cases and indeed showed TDP-43. It was not reported in the paper because they published the gene discovery before the TDP-43 protein was known. So this is very, very interesting overlap with all this ELS type of phenotypes. There are some other families published with ALS type of presentation or FTD presentation, or PSP, progressive supranuclear palsy presentation. They all have variants outside of this capglycine domain. So maybe this variants in this gene outside of this capglycine domain represent a risk factor for those other diseases. So we need to learn about 
all of that in the future. So very fascinating, interesting, interesting things. The protein is involved in retrograde axonal transport. So it's, it's a very large protein and interacts with dynein complex is very large and is responsible for retrograde axonal transport. So that's a very important connection and perhaps a drug target for the future experiments. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot and I'll certainly keep Perry syndrome in my head when I'm seeing patients going forward. And I look forward to potentially treatments, like you said, coming to light for frontotemporal dementia and other FTD 43 apathies that might be able to help these patients. Thank you for taking the time to spend with us today. Thank you, Dr. Schaefer. The views and opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society or their affiliated journals, Movement Disorders and Movement Disorders Clinical Practice. Any disclosures of the participants can be found within the episode description located on the MDS website.